I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on The Pod, we're talking ethics and politics with one of the world's most famous philosophers, Peter Singer. We'll be hearing about what it means for nations to behave ethically. If Britain can give 0.7% of its gross national income as foreign aid, then there's no reason why Australia can't do the same. Whether power can be about more than just self-interest. But I don't think the desire for power in someone with political ideas is necessarily a self-interested thing to do. It might be that you're seeking power in order to achieve the things that you want to do on a larger scale. And an ethical take on the rise of Donald Trump. I think this is clearly the direction that the United States is going in at the moment and something that Donald Trump made clear as a candidate that he was going to put America first and we now see what the impact of that is. Stay with us. Hi and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Nikki Lovegrove. For many people, the words politics and ethics are probably a bit jarring to hear together. When we do hear the words in the same sentence, it's likely in the context of a political scandal or of some shameful political conduct. In other words, we're more likely to hear about the lack of ethics in our political systems. And yet, most people, policymakers and politicians included, are guided to some extent by a sense of right and wrong and a desire to do good in the world, whatever that may be. So, for those concerned with politics and policy, how are we to know where to focus our efforts so we can be most effective in doing good? What of the ethics of individuals in positions of immense political power, like the US president? And how does the question of ethics change if we're talking not just about the actions of individuals, but of the actions of nation-states in a complex global system? Coming up on today's Policy Forum pod, you'll hear from world-famous philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer, and hear his thoughts on these and other questions. For those who don't know him, Peter Singer is Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and is also Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. He's the author of Animal Liberation, which has been widely credited with starting the modern animal rights movement, as well as the author of numerous books and articles on philosophy, morality, poverty, abortion and euthanasia. I have to say I'm a big fan of Peter Singer's work, so I was very excited to get the chance to ask him some big questions about ethics and world politics. Of course, we'd also love to hear your thoughts as well. So don't forget, you can always reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Stick around after the discussion, and we'll have a look at some of the things talked about today. And we'll also be bringing you some exciting news about a new Policy Forum project coming up. But for now, let's have a listen to that discussion. Peter Singer, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Good. Happy to be with you. Peter, in your career, you've covered a wide range of issues from animal rights to euthanasia. But I want to start with your work on effective altruism and what that means for development policy. So perhaps you could tell us what is effective altruism? Effective altruism can mean two things. It can mean uh, a philosophy, a way of living, um, philosophy in that popular sense rather than in a sense that people in the discipline might 
use, um, and it can refer to a social movement of people who essentially embrace that way of living. Uh, and, and what that way of living is, is to regard um, doing good in the world, making the world a better place, uh, as an important life goal, maybe not your exclusive life goal, it's not a movement only for saints, but uh, to regard that as an important part of what you want to do with your life. And in thinking about how you will make the world a better place, to use reason and evidence to work out the most effective ways of doing that. So with whatever resources you have, whether it's money or time, to try to make the world a better place, you want to get the best value for that money or time and do the most good that you can with them. I know that your work on effective altruism has been looking at how you can have the biggest impact in terms of, for example, where you put your money, where you donate it. Um, But I was wondering, when we think about development and when we think about doing good, how do we balance, morally speaking, the urgent task of saving people from preventable deaths against the more complicated long-term work of development of making people's lives better by promoting things like human rights, gender equality and good governance? Well, uh, that certainly is a, a decision that people have to try and work around. Uh, for me, the, the questions really are, what is the likelihood that the more longer-term things are going to lead to a greater amount of good being achieved than the short-term things? So if you think of it in terms of, of risk analysis, you can say, well, with these resources, I could definitely save 10 people who are currently in a dire situation. Maybe there's a famine and uh, we can provide food for them and we can help them to get through this famine. Um, Alternatively, I could use the same resources in another way where the outcome is less certain uh, and it's more long-term, but it's possible that it will be a much more significant outcome that in the long run will contribute to many more people surviving or even thriving rather than uh, just barely surviving. Uh, So if you knew all the facts and you could estimate um, what the chances are that you will achieve that by the more long-term method of proceeding, then you would be able to say what the expected value is, that is the the value divided by or discounted by the the chances that you'll achieve it. Uh, And that's the theoretical basis. But of course, that's not very helpful when many of the things that you might want to do, you're not really going to get the numbers. Uh, So at that point, I think you should be aware of all the information that's available that you can draw on, but you're going to have to reach a judgment where other people might reach a different judgment. You can't conclusively say one way is the better way to go here or not because you're going to have the option of reasonable difference about what the chances are of of your success and also perhaps what the benefits would be of your success. A lot of your work addresses the moral obligations of individuals, as you just discussed, um, and we heard about... um, you know, the type of thinking that individuals can do to make sure that they are having the biggest impact in the world. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on the moral obligations of nation states and what you think a truly ethical foreign policy might look like. Nation states certainly have moral obligations to also make the world a better place um, and not only to think about their own citizens or residents. I think this is clearly 
the direction that uh, the United States is going in at the moment, and it's something that Donald Trump made clear as a candidate that he was going to put America first, and we now see what the impact of that is. And I think that it is clearly unethical to disregard the interests of other nations by, for example, uh, not reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So um, I think uh, all nation states should be aware of the impact that their actions have elsewhere in the world. And firstly, they should refrain from actions that are harming other people and uh, emitting, emitting greenhouse gases is clearly one of those things. Um, but they also, I think, wealthy nations anyway, have an obligation to uh, assist other nations that are less fortunate. Uh, and in that respect, um, we don't have to look as far as Trump's America. We can look at Australia right now and the fact that foreign aid is a historic low and is projected to get lower still for the next couple of years. Um, uh, and although we, we clearly are one of the world's wealthiest nations, we are doing quite poorly in terms of comparisons with other nations. We give uh, less than a third, for example, uh, of the amount that the United Kingdom gives as a proportion of our gross national income. Uh, and I think that's quite shameful. I think it's, it's clear that we're not acting ethically in that respect. And uh, as, as citizens, I think we ought to be trying to voice our concerns about that and trying to persuade our government that uh, if Britain can give 0.7% of its gross national income as foreign aid, then there's no reason why Australia can't do the same. You spoke there about foreign aid and also climate change, but I guess I'm wanting to know, do you think nation states have an obligation to kind of think of the, um, the whole world when they make, it, make their decisions and not just people within their own national borders? Yes, certainly I do. Um, I mean, you have to expect that governments will think more about the interests of the people within their borders. Uh, you could say, you know, that's their responsibility, and if they don't, who will? But um, I don't think they can ethically defend uh, ignoring the interests of others beyond their borders, uh, as, and especially, as I say, where they're actively harming them or where they could quite easily and at very modest cost to themselves make a big difference to uh, other nations or other people in other nations. Is there a particular nation that you think comes closest to this kind of ideal ethical foreign policy in terms of promoting the universal good and not just the interests of their own citizens? I don't know that there's any nation that uh, is completely neutral in that respect, but uh, it's typically been the Scandinavian nations that have done uh, better in, in that respect. I think Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark... Um, and also, I think you could perhaps add in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, those nations have 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 met or passed the zero point seven percent of gross national income standard for foreign aid that the United Nations set up many years ago. Um, I think they also uh, are responsible nations in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. Denmark, in particular, for example, is producing a, a, a lot of wind power and is making big efforts to move to cleaner energy. Uh, and uh, they also have good policies in terms of uh, taking refugees. Well, I think Denmark actually less good on that, but Sweden um, certainly has um, uh, been taking quite significant numbers. So um, I think in general they have more of a tradition of thinking of the world as a whole rather than of, of their own people. I want to ask now about the relationship between politics and ethics. Um, I think a lot of people looking at the state of politics could be quite pessimistic and think that in order for a politician to be successful politically, 
um, he or she has to compromise on a lot of their moral values that they might hold dear. To put it another way, it could seem like you can either be morally right and consistent in politics or you can be effective, but it's difficult to be both. Given that so much of your work is concerned with being as effective as possible in doing good in the world, what thoughts do you have about how those in politics could seek to navigate this problem? Politics is the art of the possible. And uh, so in one sense, you, you do have to compromise what you would like to see if, let's say, you had sole power and could make those decisions and, and could stay in power even if you made decisions that uh, a lot of people in the electorate were not happy with. Um, so, But I, I don't think that you're acting unethically in making those compromises because I think you are trying to achieve as much good as you can. And I think that's the right thing to be doing. So sometimes it is right to work for a less than ideal outcome if it's clear that uh, an ideal outcome is not achievable and uh, a less than ideal outcome is the best that you can achieve. Uh, So I would not say that that's really uh, not acting ethically, um, but it's simply recognising that to act ethically in this particular set of circumstances requires you to do things that in different circumstances you might regard as less satisfactory. I guess there it it sounds like a balance between as you say, pursuing, uh, pursuing your, your values and the most effective way of doing that politically, the art of what's possible. But that also seems to require gaining power and to gain power um, can seem like a self-interested thing to do rather than a moral thing to do. Gaining power may be a self-interested thing to do. It may be something that you, some people seem to want power. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For its own sake, some people want power for the other rewards that it brings, whether that's uh, fame or money or whatever it might be. But I don't think um, the desire for power in someone with political ideas is necessarily a self-interested thing to do. Uh, it might be that you're seeking power in order to achieve the things that you want to do on a larger scale. And uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that uh, you, you can only, there are many things you can only do if you gain power, and that makes that itself an ethical goal if you have the character and determination that you will actually, once you are in power, you will use that to achieve the things that are universally good rather than just the things that are good for you. Well, turning now to an individual who has gained a lot of power, in 2004 you published a book called uh, The President of Good and Evil, and in it you put then-US President George W. Bush under the moral microscope and took a look at how his statements and rhetoric on good and evil align with his actions in office We're still early days in the Trump presidency, but if you did the same to President Trump, how do you imagine he would stack up? Would he be any better or worse, morally speaking, than George W. Bush? I think uh, on the present record we've had, uh, he would be significantly worse. Um, 
But he would also be a, a quite different kind of president to examine in this way. I got interested in examining Bush's ethics because Bush made a lot of statements about morality and what is the right thing to do. Um, he made uh, statements, for example, he made a major televised statement about uh, why he was opposed to the use of embryos for stem cell research and um, why he was coming out with a kind of a compromise on, on that issue himself. Um, you can't really imagine Donald Trump sitting down and addressing the American nation on uh, an ethical issue of that kind. And in fact, you know, his, his, insofar as he talks about what's right or wrong, it's at the level of the, the tweet. Um, it's not at the level of any kind of serious... Uh, worked out statement. Uh, I don't think that Donald Trump is really interested in ethics at all. Um, I think he is basically interested in himself. Uh, and uh, I think George W. Bush, much as I disagreed with his ethics, w was interested in ethics. And um, although I, you know the, the book is is highly critical, and uh, some American conservatives dismissed it as another liberal attack on on Bush. Um, I think I acknowledged that there are some things that he did that were good. He took a, a reasonably good stand on, on foreign aid, um, on making antiretrovirals available for the victims of HIV AIDS, uh, also trying to um, Im improve uh, trading conditions for African countries to sell some of their products to the United States. So, you know, despite many disasters, of which uh, Iraq was obviously the greatest, um, I think you know, there was some serious moral concern. I just can't see that at all in, in Trump. And the whole slogan of um, America first uh, suggests that he's not really interested in the broader viewpoint that ethics would require him to take. On the topic of Trump, many people explaining his victory point not just, not just to his appeal to people who have been left behind economically, but also the failure of the political left to attract these voters. And one of the arguments that you hear a lot is that the political left has focused too much on so-called identity politics, on pointing, on calling out the instances of sexism and racism that at sometimes that often surrounded the Trump campaign, but perhaps at the expense of um, turning away Rust Belt voters who are more concerned with economic insecurity. And people have pointed to other phenomena like Brexit in the UK and the rise of right-wing populism around the world as a sign that the left is kind of on the back foot. Do you think that by focusing so much on the values of identity politics that the left has moved away from a necessary focus on consequences? It's possible that uh, there has been too much focus on some areas of identity politics by, by the left and um, perhaps you know, issues that affect a small number of people and, uh, and have been not of interest to mainstream voters. But I think that it, you know, it's not simply the failure of the left. I think it's the ability of the right to awaken fears in many people of being so-called swamped, put that in quotes, by uh, foreigners, people of uh, different ethnic or religious persuasion. Um, and this is some, you know, I think this is what, what we've seen once again, um, as of course we saw in Europe in the 1930s, is that there is this uh, visceral response that um, uh, skillful politicians can evoke in people. They can make them fearful of, of these others who they feel are taking over and that they're losing their country and their culture to these others. Uh, and um, 
So when this situation arises, it's it's a potential there for the right to use, use and to use to gain power. And I think it's probably you know more that, although the things that you mentioned, the, the things that the left has not focused on are part of it, um, I think that it's not just that the left was ignoring the economic situation of, of Rust Belt working class voters, but it was that there was this different appeal. And I think we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of the latent danger of allowing the right to awaken these fears of immigration, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, all of those. And finally, Peter, looking ahead at the world, there seem to be different types of challenges confronting us in terms of development, which we've already spoken about. We've obviously got the challenge of many people still suffering in poverty. But we're also facing what seem to be broader systemic threats with looking down the barrel of things like climate change, the risk of great power conflict or um, a nuclear crisis, the rise of authoritarianism around the world. How can we know where to focus our efforts? Does it make more sense ethically to be working in the development space and trying to bring the bottom up? Or should we be working in the political space and trying to prevent the whole thing from toppling over? That's a, v- a very big question. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that I can really answer it. Um, I do think that there's a lot we can do in development. And I think we have made progress uh, in developing countries. The, the, the figures we get out of the World Bank for the number of people in extreme poverty are encouraging in that we are now down to about 10% of the world's population uh, living in extreme poverty, which is probably the first time in the history and indeed uh, evolution of our species that we've had fewer than 10% of the world's population unable to meet their basic needs. Uh, so so that's, that's important progress, and I think we can do better and continue to make further progress there. The whole thing is endangered uh, clearly by climate change because climate change will hit hardest among the poorest people, people who are dependent on rainfall to grow their crops when rainfall patterns will change. People who are living on the coast where their land will get inundated, like low-lying delta regions like Bangladesh could uh, could be inundated. So I do think it's really important to work on climate change as well because uh, it's going to undo all these things. And of course, you know, I think there's no doubt that the election of Trump heightens international tensions and raises the risk of great power confrontation and possibly even a nuclear confrontation. Um, that's probably, I hope, a very much smaller chance, but it's obviously would be a, a total catastrophe. So uh, it's definitely worth working in that area as well. It means we have a, have a lot to do. We can't uh, just ignore any of these areas. Well, it's been a very interesting discussion and many more things I would like to ask you, but unfortunately that's all we have time for today. Peter Singer, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Nikki. It's been good to talk to you. That was Professor Peter Singer talking with me there and a very big thanks again to him for his time. Joining me for the Postpod Roundup is Policy Forum's Martin Pierce. Martin, what was one of the biggest takeaways from you from what Peter Singer had to say? Yeah, hi, Nicky. It was a really interesting discussion, I thought. I mean, one thing that really jumped out at me was where he was talking about the ethics of politicians and the pursuit of power and how politics is essentially the art of the possible and that sometimes it's better to have a less than ideal outcome than uh, having something which is you know, a really dreadful outcome. The other thing I thought that jumped out at me was about around politicians' motivations and the pursuit of power. We tend to have, I think, a fairly cynical view of politicians, and we sometimes use the term 
career politicians in a slightly derogatory way. But I think the point that he was making there was that most politicians enter politics in order to do good, whatever their values and whatever their beliefs are. Very interesting stuff. What about you? Yeah, I found it really interesting about um, how Peter Singer was spelling out what um, an ethical foreign policy might look like. So much of Peter Singer's work with, with, with... which people are familiar with and which I'm familiar with is about personal ethics. But it was interesting for him to identify um, key markers of how international states can behave altruistically in the system. And that's for things like climate change. It's for things like foreign aid. And I think it's especially disappointing for me, at least, to um, bear that in mind when looking at countries like Australia, which has been dragging its feet on climate action and has been slashing its aid budget And also looking at the United States under President Trump and his appeal of putting America first, making America great again, which really runs counter to to Peter Singer's ethics of a universalist approach and of doing the greatest good for the greatest number, no matter whether or not they live in your own national boundaries. So that's what I found interesting. Yeah, some of the stuff that he had to say about Donald Trump and the rise of populism was particularly interesting, I think. And he talked about, he made a comparison to the 1930s and how, uh, to use his words, the visceral response that skillful politicians can evoke in people when they're talking about you know, being swamped by foreigners or people of different ethnic or religious persuasion. And I thought that was a very interesting analysis of why the rights message has managed to resonate with voters in perhaps a way that, uh, that politicians from the left side of politics haven't managed. Some very big questions there. And for our listeners out there, don't forget, we'd love to hear, hear your thoughts on anything that we discussed today in the podcast. In other news, our regular podcast is going to be taking a bit of a break, but that's because we've got a really exciting new project coming up also in the podcast space. Martin, what have we got planned there? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So what we're going to be doing is essentially a spin-off series from our regular podcast where we take a closer look at Australian politics and Australian policy. And what we'll do is in each podcast, we will take a look at a specific area of policy. It could be climate change, it could be security, it could be immigration. We'll take a look at what the state of policy and politics is in that space at the moment, but also importantly, what the likely challenges are going to be over the coming few years and what policy we need in place in order to be able to meet those challenges. As regular listeners will know, we'll base, we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. So we're going to be involving a lot of the academics from here. It's going to be an interesting series. Well, there definitely are some really big challenges facing Australian politics right now. So I'm very excited to hear what our Crawford experts have to say on those. Until then, for all the big public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific. Don't forget that you can always check out what's going on on policyforum.net. This week, we've got some great pieces looking at solutions to the North Korean nuclear crisis, about how to rehumanize our cities, and also about China's waiting game for hosting the Football World Cup. Bit disappointed they didn't say that we are tackling China's waiting game for the World Cup. Yeah, I guess I missed that metaphor, didn't I? I probably should have thrown in some lines about how China will be scoring goals on the world stage while I was at it. Sorry, I hope my interruption didn't throw you offside. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, We look forward to being back with you soon for our special series on Australian politics. But until then, that's all for us. Cheerio.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.